Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Good morning, Keegan. Good morning to you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I feel pretty good today. You know, I was just telling you I'm getting ready to start a uh, workout challenge for the next 25 days, which I'm actually really excited about, which is how you know, like, you're ready yeah. Because usually I'm like, I very reluctantly go into things like this. Like, I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't want to have to do this because I hate being sweaty or uncomfortable. But now I'm like, I hate, let's do it. I hate being sweaty. That was something I was just talking to my friend Kate about yesterday. And because she's like, oh, yeah, my face sweats like crazy when I work out. And I'm like, I couldn't handle that. Like, that would drive me crazy. Luckily, my face doesn't sweat that much, but oh my God, do like my pits sweat so much and like my mm. back, like I always get like sweat down my back, like ugh. I Which get I, I do like. bra sweat like no other. Dude, this year, like I still have small boobs, but like this year because I've put on weight in the quarantine and I'm not working out, which is totally fine, but like my boobs are bigger than usual and it's like the first time I've ever had like under boob sweat. It's the worst. Like, I know what people are talking about now. Yeah, this is really unhealthy, so don't do this. But I was having a couple nights where I was just waking up soaking wet with sweat every night. And so I was so sick of it one night that in the middle of the night, I just grabbed my deodorant and put it like under my boobs. And I know that's dangerous, but I was so, I guess because of like the aluminum and stuff that's in most deodorants, it's just like not, it can block your pores and stuff. You you could like break out in a rash and stuff. And I remember once hearing the story that a teacher told me where like, he had a friend that painted his whole like chest and body and he ended up dying. Oh, yeah. I think it's, yeah. I think it's just like the paint had aluminum in it. Right. I think it's like you're not supposed to do that. But I did it for one night. I survived. I'm fine. But. Oh, no. And I've definitely put um, I put deodorant between my thighs. Oh, yeah. Before, like, because my it's thighs will chafing. rub together. Yeah, exactly. And actually, we are not sponsored by them. But um, my friend Cassie, who is also my co-host of My Worst Date, she has this deodorant called Lumi. And it doesn't have aluminum in it. And it comes in a tube. Uh-huh. And you, like, squeeze it onto your fingers and then rub it onto your armpits. And it is amazing. But and do it you still have get aluminum. sweaty? I mean... Not really. I'm always kind of sweaty, but like I use clinical strength like deodorant to keep myself from getting sweaty. And Lumi works pretty well, I'd say. Because for me, I don't like using natural deodorants only because I still get super sweaty. I get wet. 
You yeah, know no, I mean? this this doesn't is not like that. Okay. This isn't like that. Like it actually is pretty good. I don't know how natural it is, but I do know that it doesn't have aluminum in it. Hmm, but this is it. a very interesting conversation to have before today's uh, episode topic. Yeah, it's completely off topic. Um, we well, not are... really, because we're talking about athletes. That's true. We're talking about athletes, athletes, sweat, athletics, things like that. Keegan apparently was really getting in the mood. Uh, and has inspired her to now go on this workout experience. I mean, I had already <laughs> decided to do this, and then I watched. I was I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube of people trying different like YouTube workout challenges, and I watched these people do Chloe Ting's like twenty five day hourglass challenge, and their bodies looked totally different after twenty five <laughs> days. And I'm like, you know what? If they can do it, I can I do can it. Do it. Awesome. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I've been kind of surrounded by a lot of sports lately just because um, sports have kind of come back on through the pandemic and my boyfriend is a sports lover and I don't know a lot about most sports um, but I'm learning a bit more and I'm really finding myself fascinated by uh, what goes on behind the scenes, who these people are, what their backgrounds are, the adversities they have to face and things like that. And there are so many wonderful sports legends and icons that have been forgotten that were really cultural icons as a whole, as well as being athletes. And, you know, many of them are forgotten. I don't know who Keegan is going to be talking about, but the person that I am going to be talking about today is someone who has been I, I believe, very much forgotten in the world of sports history. Should I get into it, Keegan? Absolutely. I'm excited. Okay. I'm really excited, too. I'm very happy that I'm going first today. So I am going to be talking about the wonderful figure skater, Mabel Fairbanks. I knew you were going to be talking about a figure skater. Yes. I knew it. So I am working on currently writing a podcast that has to do with figure skating, um, and so part of that has just been me really just spending any free time that I have researching any skaters I didn't know, reading up, you know, manuals, rule books, learning my history, things like that. And Mabel is somebody that I feel like was probably one of the biggest trailblazers in figure skating and most people don't even really know about her. Well, I do want to say that I love the name Mabel. That's the yes. name of my fish. My yep. elementary school was Mabel Hogard Elementary School. I think Mabel is such a cute name. It's a great name. And Max says that it sounds kind of like she would be singing after Ella Fitzgerald. You know? <laughs> Mabel, like, what's her last name? Fairbanks. Fairbanks, yeah. You know, like it's just she's got a very, you know, performer name and she w was a true performer. So Mabel was born on November 14th, 1915 in Florida's Everglades. Her father was black and her mother was of Seminole, African-American and English descent. Her mom was the kind of mom that took in all the neighborhood kids and loved them. When she was speaking of her mother in 1999, Mabel said, My mother took in everybody, every kid off the street, and gave them a place to stay and something to eat. So I never knew who were my real sisters and brothers, but my older sister told me there were 14. I assume she means either 14 biological brothers and sisters, or there was just like 14 kids in the house at one point you know, together. There are just some people who do that. Like my um, grandmother is one of those people. My grandma and her aunt. Like I will get, or my, her aunt, my aunt. 
her daughter. I will get letters from them that are signed by people I don't know. And it's because they continually take people in. Yeah. Um, and once those people are taken in, they consider them to be our family. Exactly. You know what I mean? So they'll sign all my birthday cards, even if I've never met them. <laughs> you know, they have kids and my aunt considers those kids to be her grandchildren. Yeah. You know, it's it's some people are just like that. Exactly. That gift. Exactly. So that seems to be kind of what the very beginning of her life was like. But unfortunately, her mother passed away when she was only eight years old. And story says that her father abandoned the family sometime between when she was between the ages of three and five. There's very little information about this. Also, probably because I was trying to get a lot of in-depth information in a short amount of time for this episode. But I did read somewhere that she was also very reluctant to speak of her childhood when asked about it in interviews. Um, so well, after- I, it can't have been easy. Like, what happened after that? I mean, I, I understand she didn't want to talk about it, but that's probably well, why we, she didn't want to talk about it. We do know. We do know a bit. So she ended up staying with the teacher for a bit, which she didn't like because she said that she felt like a maid. Like, obviously, you know, young black girl. I don't know who she was living with, um, but this person made her feel, you know, not like... Not part of the family. Not part of the family, like not part of the home at all. So she moved to Harlem to live with her brother and his wife, and she worked with them in their fish market on 8th Avenue in Harlem. And this living situation didn't last very long either because one day at work, Mabel gave a desperate family more fish than they paid for, and her brother kicked her out and fired her. So super awesome family. So now, yeah, I mean, I get it that it's difficult because I'm sure that he's struggling to make ends meet. He's got another mouth to feed and he's like, this is business. You can't do this. But clearly, first of all, she's really young. And then it's also coming from a place of compassion. Exactly. Yeah, this is it's just very sad. She does end up being homeless and she sleeps on a park bench either near or in Central Park. And the dates for this are all really hazy. But this all definitely occurred before she turned 13, which is just so sad. And 13 is a baby. Have you had a conversation with a 13 year old recently? I mean, I. Yeah, I think of myself at 13, and I believe she was even younger because I was reading that she started skating around the age of 10, which is making me think that she's maybe even, like, 9 when this is occurring. Like, she's very, very, very young. Um, And I know that she wasn't living with either her brother or the teacher for very long. So I would assume maybe 9 or 10 years old was when all of this was happening. So while she was sleeping on a park bench, a wealthy white woman spotted her and offered her a job as a babysitter. And this new job was like in prime real estate for Mabel because it was in this like high rise Manhattan apartment that overlooked the Central Park Ice Arena. And she just loved watching these skaters. So she saved up her money eventually to buy a $1 pair of secondhand skates from a pawn shop. And this was either in 1925 or 1928. Unfortunately, these skates were two sizes too big, so she had to stuff them with cotton balls. When asked about whether or not she was admitted to the rink at this time, she says later in life, blacks don't skate there, but it was a public place, so I just carried on. So she carried on by watching other skaters on the ice and trying to imitate them. And she would also well, listen black in. black people are also just really not, I mean, even to this day, like, it's a very white sport, figure yeah. skating. There aren't a lot of black skaters there are not and you're gonna learn about some of them though because of Mabel which is why I think she's so awesome I think you brought her up before when we talked about who was that Sonia what was her name oh uh Syria Bonnelly yes I might have yeah so 
she would watch some of these like wealthier white skaters and she would also listen in on their lessons that like they were paying for, which when I, and they didn't go any further than that. But when I read that, that scared me because like if, if I were to like, if I was a kid and I were to go to a rink and like scoot up against a coach and listen to what they were saying, like either that coach or especially that kid's mother would have my head for listening in on a lesson. So I don't know what the environment was at that time, if this was just like, you know, public skating and it wasn't a big deal or whatever. Well, I'm sure it would have been the same. I mean, people do that as well. Like um, whenever people do workout classes in public in the park where yep. other people will kind of like hide <laughs> and from, do the class from as bridesmaids. well. Yeah. Oh, that did happen in Bridesmaids. Yeah. Yeah. But it is a thing that people do. And like, you know, there are people paying for it. I understand why they're upset but at the same time if I was paying for something and someone else was at, like benefiting from it I would kind of just be like whatever well and obviously <laughs> like this girl had no way of getting a coach there was no you know what I mean I hope that right. you would be able I can't, to see her and know that like it was with good intentions because she loves yeah, skating yeah I couldn't see myself being mad at a 10 year old I mean you'd you be, know yeah Mabel was also inspired by Sonia Henney, the Norwegian skater and film actress who starred in the 1936 film One in a Million. Sonia Henney made the short skirts and white boots popular in the sport, but she was also most likely a Nazi sympathizer. Boo hiss. Boo, boo, boo. And she's, have you ever heard of Sonia Henney? No. Okay, so she, she was huge in the 30s because she was uh, this great skater, but she was also beautiful, and so she was hired to be an actress in movies, and she acted in quite a few films and would always skate in them. And they always show one of her movies in the, at the movie theater in Sun Valley, where I would train growing up. During the 1930s, Mabel tried to enter other local ranks, but was turned away because she was black, still. But Mabel was exceptionally determined. She returned to the rink every day, only to be turned away by the cashier. Finally, the manager admitted her, and she was allowed to skate. To ensure that Mabel was getting enough practice in, her uncle Wally, Wally Hunter, built a six-by-six-foot rink in, quote, her room, which I saw in multiple articles, so I don't know if that means her bedroom, but he made her an ice rink made of wood and tin with dry ice underneath to keep the water frozen. Pause. Uncle Wally, where uncle the Wally. fuck were you? I have no like, idea. Who, is this her biological uncle? That's a really great question. They just refer to him as Uncle Wally a lot throughout this. And then interesting. So, yeah. So I actually I read the name Wally a lot in my research. And it wasn't until I found this article from 1945 where they actually said who like his full name. So his name is Wally Hunter. I didn't go into, you know, what their relation was or anything, but it's always just Uncle Wally. And it it's looks just like strange that this came like this support came out of nowhere when I'm like she was homeless yeah. at like 10 where yeah. were you that's a great great question I mean, better late than never so it's fine but exactly exactly so once Mabel was admitted to the rank she became somewhat of a spectacle at first but because she was so good eventually white audiences started flocking to watch her skate she caught the attention of coaches Maribel Vincent Owen and Howard Nicholson. Vincent Owen won the 1932 Olympic bronze medal, and she's also a nine-time U.S. champion, and Nicholson coached Sonia Henney. Her coaches had to have a talk with her and made her face a harsh reality. Because she was black, she was not allowed into any skating clubs and therefore would not qualify for any national or international competition, or any competitions for that matter. So though she was really good and she was coached, she could not be part of any skating institution, any sort of skating club. 
I'm not going to lie. I'm a little surprised that they took her on yeah. given that. Because like what I mean, other than just to give her this experience for for why they coached know? her for free. Well, you know, and at the time, the thing is, is that while competitive skating was very big, the way to make money was being what they would call a professional skater. So doing shows and things like that. So it still made sense for, you know, her to learn how to skate. And she was so good and loved it. And these two decided that they would coach her for free. I I don't think they coached her for that long, maybe just when she was kind of still in her teens and younger years. Uh, Because I know that her uncle Wally coached her later on in life as well. Interesting. He was just kind of everywhere, you know. She did, however, attempt to take part in the Olympic trials one year, but she wasn't permitted. And the whole stupid situation is that, like, her coaches even said that if she were to take the test for the levels needed to reach the Olympic level of skating, she would have easily passed all of those skating levels. And in 1938, she said, if I had gone to the Olympics and become a star, I would not be who I am today. Which... The way that it was written in the article, which I think I got that from a Guardian article, made it seem like it was kind of a positive thing. Like, my setbacks made me who I am today. But when I read that, I really just heard, like, I, you have no idea how good I could have been if you would have just let me do it. Like, I am, I'm not as successful today because you wouldn't let me compete. That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like it was meant as a thing that was like supposed to be inspirational. Mm -hmm. Um, Like these trials are what made me become the person that I am, which I have a lot of admiration for that. However, it's a really upsetting thing. I feel like a lot of people who have faced adversity say something similar, but it's I don't know. It to me it 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 bums me out a little bit. It bummed me out too and that's why I was just kind of, you know, I wanted to bring that up because it, it seemed like it was to appease the readers and to the audience to understand that she's a fighter because she was. Like she was so persistent always. Well, and and maybe she believed that about herself. Like I I can totally see telling myself that story in order for me to feel okay about what happened to me. And in a lot of ways, I mean, yes, of course, like your trials make you stronger. Like I think everybody feels that way, but it sucks that that had to happen in the first place. Yeah, exactly. By the time she was 20, she had developed her own act. Soon enough, she was performing at the Gay Blades Ice Arena in Manhattan to a mixed-race audience. But even in that environment, Mabel still felt like an added attraction and not the star. She moved to Los Angeles in the 40s, where she toured with the Ice Capades to Mexico and eventually made her way into the famous Ice Follies show. She still experienced discrimination. Her one-time hero, Sonia Henney, once barred her from a show. I had to mention that bitch again. Sorry. Yeah, because she's a fucking Nazi sympathizer. She's a Nazi sympathizer. She she don't care about you. And it sucks whenever you realize that your heroes are like that. It's like, you know, that's why they say don't meet your heroes because they're going to disappoint you. Exactly, exactly. So in this part of my notes is where I want to talk about this amazing article that I found on Google. It was... Uh, published on May 5th, 1945, in the Afro-American newspaper with the headline, Mabel Fairbanks harassed by Jim Crow. White producers refuse to book her. So her uncle Wally is the one kind of giving this interview for the most part. And this is where it starts saying that he is her coach and also her manager. So he is the one who kind of books these different performances for her. And he had been trying to get her a performance on the at the 
Iceland skating rink atop of Madison Square Garden. And he said that the people at Madison Square Garden were like all for it at first. They were very excited to have her there. But then he mentioned that the proceeds would benefit the Harlem Fresh Air Fund for children. And then after that, they backed out. So Uncle Wally said, I think the word Harlem threw a scare into him. Wally says at the end of the article, she lives in the hope that someday she will break through the stupid red tape that holds her back from taking her place among the top performers where she belongs. He also said Mabel Fairbanks is great, but the ice skating world will never be great until it is ready to accept great colored performers. In her shows, she was known for her speed reverse, a move that today would probably just be called a very fast scratch spin, which is where you're just spinning on one foot. But she, okay. would, she would be doing it backwards, which is a backwards scratch spin. But she was probably doing it so fast that, you know, it was amazing to audiences. Because at this time, there still were very few tricks to do. <laughs> you know, it was still kind of in its developmental stage. You know, it's amazing to me whenever white people are fascinated by the fact that black people are good at sports. I know. It's like, of course they're good at sports. Like, you, you took them from their native land and then made them work for generations. Exactly. <laughs> I would never put it that way myself, but I yeah, do no, see but what it's, you mean. It's, it's, it's true. true. Like actually Bill Barr, um not Bill Barr. Wow, not the Attorney General, but I was Bill like, Burr. Whoa. Bill Burr the comedian I has love a Bill whole Burr. um I love him too. He's problematic. He's yeah, got he's, some issues. He's definitely got okay. issues, but I, I enjoy some of his comedy. His comedy is funny. Yeah, um but he does say some things that I'm like, I don't like that. Um but he does have a whole bit about that, about the fact that it's just like, yeah, you make, you have s- black people come over, you enslave them, and then you make them work physical labor for generation after generation. You, their evolution, you know, lack, you're making for them strong. Lack of a better term, you breed them for that purpose. Oh, that's yeah. the truth, though. It's totally and so true. It, then you're surprised when Jackie Robinson can come in and blow all these white boys out of the park. Like, of course he could. (laughs) Of course he could, yeah. So Mabel was still really trying to find where she fit in, and she went where all lost artists went during this time, and that is Las Vegas. In Vegas, she started doing more ice shows, and she befriended none other than the infamous Rat Pack. Now... We have lots of young listeners, I know. So for the kiddos out there, the Rat Pack included a group of male singers that like Frank Sinatra, Peter Lawford, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. Mabel also became good friends with Cary Grant and Zsa Gabor, mm, which I'm Zsa. like so fancy, right? She also I actually really like Zsa, Zsa Gabor. I know she's like extra and bougie as shit, but I think that that's great. <laughs> but that's that's part of her greatness. She just is who she is, and she's bougie as fuck, you know. Mabel also performed with George Arnold's Rhythm on Ice, an otherwise all-white production that toured the U.S. and Mexico. She also toured Cuba with the known skaters in Rhapsody on Ice. As she grew older, Mabel was drawn to coaching. She would go on to coach some of the biggest trailblazers in skating's history, such as Scott Hamilton, which all of you should know if you don't know who Scott Mm -hmm. Hamilton is. What are you doing here? She also coached Atoy Wilson, who was the first black skater to win a men's event at Nationals. She coached Debbie Thomas, the first female black skater to win a national title, and she went on to win a bronze medal at the Olympics as well, I believe. She coached Tiffany Chin, who was Chinese-American, Thai Babylonia, who was half black, part Native American, and part Filipino, who was part of the pairs team, Thai and Randy, Christy Yamaguchi, who's Japanese-American, all of you should know, and Rudy Galindo, who was Latin-American. She also taught the children of Gregory Peck, Nat King Cole, and other celebs at the time. 
In articles years later, her student, Toy Williams, talks a lot about the diversity with her students. He says that they came in every shape, size, color, background. You know, she would coach these celebrity children, but then she would also, you know, help pay for a toy's skates and competition fees and things like that. You know, she took in anybody that loved the sport and she nurtured them. A toy met Mabel when he was only eight years old at L.A. Culver City Skating Club. She advocated for him to become part of the club, and she succeeded, making this the first such institution to admit a black person. This was in 1965. Atoy would go on to win his first novice men's national title when he was 13 years old, breaking that barrier. And Atoy doesn't really remember much racial tension surrounding him at the rink, and neither did Ty Babylonia or Christy Yamaguchi and Tiffany Chin. And that's because they had Mabel there to be their shield and always reminding them that they have to be so technically good that you win and they can't deny you. And we talk about that a lot where, you know, people of color, black and brown people have to work exceptionally hard and be exceptionally good for judges, particularly in a sport where if they don't like you, they can score you lower, especially during this time. Right, which we've, we've discussed that before. But I mean, yes, specifically people of color, specifically women of color. Yeah. Um, more so than anyone else. But when we get to my athletic feminist fave here, it's going to be kind of a similar thing just because she's a woman. Like, you have to be really good because you are going to be judged by your minority status, right? And we talk about this all the time. I remember feeling the anxiety when there was a crime committed, right? And saying, like, I hope it's not a black person. I hope it's not a black person. Mm -hmm. Because unlike white people, black people are judged as a whole. And it's something that they can look at and point at and say, see, black people are violent if a black person commits a crime. Where white people, that never happens. Like, no one ever says all white people whenever a white person shoots another person. Exactly, exactly. Um, So it's true. It is. And I'm amazed that she was able to shield her students from such discrimination because all of them are like, I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it was around me, but they just said that, you know, their parents and Mabel especially just really... She put her body on the line. Yeah. Just in between them, yeah. Did their best to make sure that, you know, and they said they always would, you know, arrive at competitions together and as a team and it was really just this big, you know, mismatched family. In this 2001 article, Atoy goes on to say, it's a sport that's prohibitive because of the cost. It's still a very expensive sport to get involved in with ice time, the teachers, and all of that moving up the ladder. He says he's waiting for figure skating's Tiger Woods or Serena Williams. And just by the way, if you're interested in helping young minority skaters afford their passions, go to brownbody.org or diversifyice.org to donate and support black and brown skaters. These are absolutely amazing organizations. Their websites are beautiful. Um, and they help for skating costs, skating equipment, competition fees, things like that. They also put on ice shows and skating lessons for communities and things like that. It's, they're both beautiful organizations to look into. Her students also remember her for her unique style on the ice. Instead of wearing the usual black or white boots, she wore pink, red, orange, or purple boots. Mabel never married, and she was diagnosed with, I'm going to say this wrong, myasthenia gravis and acute leukemia in mid-2001. She died on September 29th of that year at the Burbank Hospital, right in our backyard, pretty much, wow. Keegan, like so close to us. And she is so actually... how old was she at that point? Do you know? She was in her... I didn't do the math. I didn't do the math either, and it wasn't in a lot of articles. I believe she was either in her late 80s or mid-90s, I believe. 2001, okay, yeah. she was born in 15. 
So she'd be in her 80s, right? Look at both of us not knowing how to do math. I know. We're I like, think um. <laughs> every listener is listening and screaming. So, well, there's a four in there. No. Yeah. 84. She would have been 84. Ha. I think. Well, it's anyways. Fine. We're going to go with that. <laughs> she is actually Do buried. the math yourself. Yeah, right? <laughs> Don't make me do it. She's actually buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery at the beginning of the bridge to the Clark Mausoleum. So if any of you live in Los Angeles or ever visit Los Angeles and haven't been to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, it is such a cool place to go. And it is. And I had no idea that she was buried there. So next time I go, I'm going to have to go visit. Mabel became the first person of African-American descent to be indicted into both the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame in 1997 and the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame posthumously in 2001. And that is Mabel Fairbanks. Wow, dude. I'd never... I mean, I think you had mentioned this person to me before, um, but I didn't know anything about them. So that's incredible. I look forward to Googling her picture. (laughs) That's always what I want to do when I hear people talking. I'm like, what does she look like? Yeah, she's got great style. I mean, she's definitely got that like 1920s, 30s, 40s skating style, which is really cool. Very vintage pinup kind of style. You know, curly hairs, big, big, beautiful eyes, big smile. The one thing that's really unfortunate is that I cannot find video footage of her skating anywhere. Anywhere. (sighs) Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I guess to exist somewhere, I would imagine. It's got to. And I guess one of the shows she was in was actually televised. I read in a comment that somebody's like, if anybody has old like recordings of, you know, this show, put it on YouTube so we can see it. And I've, you know, kind of been working on getting into contact with some of her former students and things like that because I want to go more into her story and more into their stories as well when I, you know, go into my show and I want to know more. So as I know more, if you guys like the story and are interested, it's I mean, this is not going to come anytime soon. But eventually, I would like to tell more great stories like Mabel's and more. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. So tell me all about your feminist fave, Keegs. Okay, so this person is, I don't know, I don't want to say that they're forgotten because I've definitely seen these images before, but I want to say that I didn't see the images of this person until um, I started getting kind of interested in feminism because I am not a sports fan, just really in any way. We've We've discussed this many times. We've discussed this and it's really, it's been recently, you know, especially during the pandemic having, because all the sports are playing at once right now and it's just always on on my TV when Max is home. So I just have to kind of like soak some of that in. The only thing I watch is soccer and it's only because Anthony watches soccer and then I will occasionally watch football because I participate in my family's fantasy football leagues. But I have a Uh, real problem with the NFL. So I tend to veer away from that as well. Um, And then other than that, the only things I will watch is if it's the Olympics, I will watch figure skating, gymnastics, like those kinds of things that I enjoy to watch. Exactly. Um, But in general, I'm not the biggest sports fan. So this is probably not the most forgotten feminist favorite, but to me, it's someone that I didn't know a lot about. Cool. Um, So I'm going to talk about Catherine Switzer today. And Catherine Switzer is the first woman to have competed as a registered runner in the Boston Marathon. Ooh. Wait, I know. Yes, I know this picture. You know these pictures. And I was like, and I know that name. 
It's all mm-hmm. coming together now. Okay, I'm excited. Right. Tell me more about these, it. These pictures are famous, um, yeah. and I will definitely post them to our Instagram so that you can see these. Uh, but I got a lot of this information from um, her Wikipedia page, but actually most of the information I got, I watched a PBS YouTube you know, clip. They had like makers or something where they highlight women, uh, and it was really a very short cl- clip. It was only like seven minutes, but underneath the clip, they had a full chapter from her book Marathon Woman, uh, which I read. She's a good she's a good writer. Wow! Um, so I will put that in the show notes as well if you want to read that. But I do have excerpts from that book, and a lot of this I got from that. I also got something uh, some stuff from MarathonGuide.com, uh, the New York Times, and her website CatherineSwitzer.com. So she was born on January fifth, nineteen forty seven, on a U.S. Army base in. Amberg, Germany. And her family, there's not a lot that I've read about her childhood. I don't think that really anything in her childhood is what kind of like shaped her to become a runner or right. anything like that. So her family moved to the United States in 1949 and she graduated from George C. Marshall High School in Fairfax County, Virginia. Then she went on to attend Lynchburg College and from there she transfers to Syracuse University in 1967. Well, and she- Syracuse, if I... I'm remembering this correctly, I think is like typically a pretty female based college, right? I don't know. I'm actually not so sure about that um, because she went on to study journalism and English literature there at Syracuse. Mm -hmm. But she wrote in her book, Marathon Woman, that while she was studying there, she wanted to join a running team, but there were no women's running teams that existed at Syracuse. So I don't know. I mean, maybe there was a large population of women there, but there were no women's running teams. Yeah, I don't know historically much about it, but I do. The first time I ever heard was Syracuse, I think, was in the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. Wasn't that where she wanted to go? I don't know. I can't remember. I feel like it's, it's, it's maybe that's possible. more like later on in in the years, maybe not in late 60s, but that just popped into my head. I don't know. It's definitely not a women's college. No. Um, you know, because there's a lot of like women's colleges, but this is not a women's college, but it may have had a very active, you know, women's participation even in no the idea. late 60s. Um, but she wanted to join the women's running team, but there wasn't one. So she began training unofficially with the men's cross country team. So she would show up to like their practices and just start practicing with them kind unofficially. She wasn't part of the team. She wasn't going to be able to compete. Yep. But she just wanted to become a good runner. Very so much she's like, like I'm Mabel. Train with them. So that's where she meets 50 year old Arnie Briggs. And he is not their coach. Uh, he's actually, I think, the Syracuse like uh, mail carrier or something like that. But he also kind of trains unofficially with this team. So he's like a 50 year old man. And um, he. This sounds like a great buddy comedy. Totally. Yeah. And he was a veteran of 15 Boston marathons. So he had run in the Boston marathon 15 times at the age of 50. And so he kind of took her under his wing. I think that he saw her as this like underdog, kind of the same way that he was an underdog. Yeah. So he took her under his wing and every night he would tell stories about his Boston marathon runs. These were like the highlights of his life. So he would tell stories of his different runs all the time. And And at first, you know, Catherine loved hearing these stories, but eventually she recalled one night talking to him and just kind of almost snapping and saying, um, let's quit talking about the Boston Marathon and let's just run the damn thing. 
And at this moment, I think Arnie kind of got in his feelings a little bit. And he said, no woman can run the Boston Marathon. And she said, why not? I'm running 10 miles a night. And this is from her um, book, Marathon Woman. Uh, Arnie insisted the distance was too long for fragile women to run and exploded when I said that Roberta Gibb had jumped into the race and finished it the previous April. So... Roberta Gibb was actually the first person, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, but she Mm -hmm. did not register. She ran unofficially in the bushes next to the runners. That's awesome. Um, But she did finish um, and she went by Bobby. So Bobby Gibb. Uh, Back to her excerpt. No dame ever ran the Boston Marathon, he shouted, as skidding motorists nearly killed us. Then he added, if any woman could do it, you could, but you would have to prove it to me. If you ran the distance in practice, I'd be the first to take you to Boston. Okay, Arnie, you've been running and training with her. Why are you so quick to believe that she couldn't do it? Well, like I was rooting for you, Arnie. Well, and, you know, you should continue to root for Arnie because even she says she says that, like, he is a generally mild mannered person. Um, And my next paragraph here, it was the belief at the time that women were physiologically incapable of running 26 miles. So experts had claimed for years that distance running was damaging to women's health and femininity. So they also thought that you would become more masculine if you ran that far or that much. So they didn't allow for they didn't want running. like muscular women, apparently. Right. Yes. And they didn't allow for running more than a couple of miles in competition for women. Um, so this theory, of course, was proved false by medical studies and also by the success of women marathoners who would come later. Like they disproved, obviously, that women could not run um that distance, as was mentioned with Bobby Gibbs, who did run that distance. So Catherine was actually excited. She describes being excited by this conversation with Arnie because now she she's got a challenge and she feels like she has a trainer. She's got this man who has basically said, if you can run that distance with me, I will get you into the marathon. So the two start training together. And in three weeks, three weeks before the race, rather, Three weeks before the race, Arnie and Catherine ran 26 miles. And when they were coming down to the home stretch of that 26 miles, Catherine felt like 26 was too easy. And so she insisted that they run another five. Yeah, and Arnie, Arnie, who was 50 years old at this point, he reluctantly agrees to run this additional five miles. <laughs> I love it. Um, and when they finish, she is so excited, you know, that she was able to do this, that she hugs Arnie and then Arnie passes out from exhaustion because they've <laughs> just run 31 miles. Oh, my gosh. But after this is over, you know, he comes to after it's over, he insists that she sign up for the race. Yeah. But he also insisted that they do it properly and that she actually register. So the two of them, they check the Amateur Athletic Union rule book uh, and the entry form. And they look for anything that says that women can't compete. And they don't find anything that bars entry on the basis of gender. So she pays her entry fee and she signs up as K. V. Switzer. Now, a lot of articles that you'll read will say that she did this intentionally because she wanted, she didn't want people to know that she was a woman. So right. instead of signing up Catherine, she did KV. She says that it had nothing to do with that. She just really admired J.D. Salinger and liked the way her name sounded as KV Switzer. So that's what she, how she signed up. I love that. 
Yeah. So Arnie and Catherine, along with Catherine's boyfriend, Tom Miller, who was a 235-pound ex-All-American football player and nationally ranked hammer thrower. This guy was fucking huge. (laughs) Um, And from her book, she ended up marrying him after this for a little while, and then they got divorced. But he sounds like kind of a dick. Uh, But anyway, they set off for New York to Boston to participate in the run. And Tom, her boyfriend, had never run a marathon before, but insisted that if a girl can run it, I can run it. Oh, of course he's that kind of guy. Yeah, he's that kind of guy. He's this big meathead kind of piece of shit. But The morning of the race was freezing. It was raining sleet and snow. But Catherine said that the weather didn't concern her because she'd been training in weather like that in New York for the last five months. So she was like, this is going to be fine. Um, She describes getting dressed. And she was like, I I kind of blush now at the fact that I put on this like cute burgundy outfit. I put on my earrings. I put on my lipstick. Um, And then she ended up actually pinning her number, which Arnie went and picked up their numbers. And she was uh, 261. She ended up pinning it to her sweatshirt instead. She's like, I'm going to commit to wearing this sweatshirt this whole time, you know, yeah. <laughs> instead of pinning it to like my cute little outfit. Uh, but it was also it was cold, you yeah. know, uh, but there were 741 people participating in this race. So Catherine was nervous about being the only one, the only woman in the race, but says that the reception was incredibly warm. Most people congratulated her. They were excited to see a woman in the race. And she says that one man even asked her for tips on how to get his wife to start running. And another actually asked if his wife could take a picture with Catherine. So she went and took a picture with this runner's wife. Imagine owning that picture now. Like (laughs) such a cool picture to have. such a cool piece of history like anybody whose parents like ever ran a Boston Marathon I would just want to like go and look at those photos and see what I could find in the background just at any sort of historical moment I love like I would love to find just old photos or like I love people find other people they knew in the backgrounds of photos or things like that yeah and you know they of course had no idea that this they knew it was a thing of course because there had never been a woman who had registered to run it had a number uh, before for the Boston Marathon but they didn't know how big of a thing it was going to be so later when they developed those pictures I'm sure they were like wow you know (laughs) they've got that framed somewhere I'm sure yeah or they sold Uh, it for lots of money yeah So Catherine had worn lipstick to the race, uh, and she describes how her boyfriend Tom had demanded she take her lipstick off because someone might notice she's a girl and refuse to let her run. But she refused to take her lipstick off. She's like, I wear lipstick every day. I'm not going to not wear it. Yeah. Go fuck yourself, Tom, basically. The race began and things were really good at first. Like they described waving at everyone. She said that Tom and Arnie had this kind of like pride for running with her because they were getting all of this attention. Yeah. And Catherine, though, she said she wanted to stay kind of low key, but well wishers kept shouting at her. And so eventually, at about the four-mile mark, she got the attention of the press truck. And so they pulled in front of her. So they, like, pulled the truck up. They got Mm -hmm. in front of her. And then they were all these press people in the back of this truck taking pictures and videos um, of her running. And suddenly, in the middle of the road, as they're, they're running past, there's a man shaking his finger at Catherine. And she thought at first that this was a spectator. So she waves at him. And when she waves at him, he reaches out and he rips a glove off of her hand mm-hmm. as she passes. And she's still like, wow, what a f- 
fucking crazy person. Like right. she's just not even thinking much about it. But seconds later, after she passed him, she hears the sound of leather shoes, which she describes as being such an alien sound because, of course, everybody is running in trainers. Right. You know? And she hears the sound of leather shoes running from behind her. And so this is another excerpt from Marathon Woman. Instinctively, I jerked my head around quickly and looked square into the most vicious face I'd ever seen. A big man, a huge man with bared teeth was set to pounce. And before I could react, he grabbed my shoulder and flung me back, screaming, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. Mm. So she then describes how the man who she later learned was race manager Jock Semple swiped down the front of her sweater and tried to rip her bib number off. Mm -hmm. But he he missed. And Arnie, her little coach, who's like so much smaller than Jock Semple, um, tried to intervene. And he knows Jock Semple from past races, you know. Um, but he gets knocked to the ground by Jock. Jock, like, knocks, he's like, you need to stay out of this, Arnie, and, like, knocks oh him to God. the ground. And she describes how terrified and embarrassed she feels as Jock had a hold of her because she's like, I'd never been spanked before. Like, yeah. I'd never been, like, assaulted like this before. And then she suddenly sees her big boyfriend, Tom, come out of nowhere and basically, like, shoulder check jock and he like sends him flying to the side of the road so hard that both arnie and Catherine are scared that he's maybe like really seriously injured or killed because he was knocked out that hard oh my gosh and so arnie yells for them to run like hell and so they take off past the press truck Uh, and at this point they're scared that they're going to get arrested for having assaulted this person And she said that she thought about quitting, but only for a moment. And when they got kind of like a safe distance away, she told Arnie, Arnie, I'm not sure where you stand in this now, but no matter what, I have to finish this race. Yeah. Even if you can't, I have to, even on my hands and knees. If I don't finish, people will say women can't do it. And they will say I was just doing this for the publicity or something. You need to do whatever you want to do, but I'm finishing. Yeah, she is. And that's exactly what, like, I was saying before is that you do have to, if she had not finished, if she had given up, which is clearly what they wanted, because at this point, the press truck had come forward yeah. and they were kind of like saying, when are you quitting? Why are you doing this? Right. They you were, and in, in, in some ways, like the trucks even sounded like they were kind of physically blocking her and getting in her way. And then there was this manager of the race who physically tried to pull her out. Yeah. Right. And I think that they wanted her to fail. Like they were waiting for her to fail. And because of that, she's like, I can't fail. I have to be extra good because they will base um, the future of women running in marathons based on what I do right now. Exactly. It's a lot of pressure, but definitely seems like the right person to take it on. Yeah. So at this point, you know, the the mood of the crowd changes like at before people seemed kind of um, supportive and excited, even if it was kind of in an insulting way. Yeah. Like, uh, like, oh, look at the little lady try and run, you know, yeah. but at least they were being supportive and positive. At this point, men start yelling obscenities at Catherine, asking her when she's going to quit. Um, and she decided at that moment that she didn't care about time. She's like, I don't care how long it takes me. I am going to finish this race. Yeah, she is. And so there's also a an incident that I didn't write down, but it pissed me off with her boyfriend, Tom, who once they found out, like in the middle of the race, they find out that um, Jock 
is a official. And so he starts saying, like, I'm never going to be able to, I'm going to be disqualified from competing uh, as an amateur athlete. Uh, I, you, he tells her, like, you have robbed me of my uh, Olympic dreams. Oh, fuck you, Because man. now I'm never going to be able to go to the Olympics You're the one that checked the guy so hard that he went yes. flying and passed out. She didn't that's do what she, anything. That's what she told him. She said, I didn't hit him. You hit him. And she's, and he says, I never should have come to Boston. And she says, I didn't tell you to come to Boston. You chose to come to Boston. Yeah. But regardless, he put her in a really shitty mental headspace. And eventually he did, he rips off his number because he's a baby. But then he eventually does start running with her again. And he starts to feel like he's going to tap out. But she's like, I've hit a good stride. I'm going to keep going. Mm -hmm. And he gets upset with her then as well because she leaves him because she's like, I have to keep running. If I slow down now, I'm never going to. Oh, he's so fragile. Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks. You know, she's 20 years old at this point. So it's not surprising to me. Baby. Yeah. It's not surprising to me that she married this guy because we were all 20 at one point. Yes, we were. um, She did divorce him later. So. Um, so she keeps running and eventually she does finish the race at four hours and 20 minutes approximately. And after the race is over, you know, she describes how, you know, there was no cheering. There was no like anything at the end of this race. But she and Arnie and Tom, they start making their way back to Syracuse and they stop at a diner along the way and they see the cover of a magazine the next morning or cover of a newspaper that someone was reading and she went up to that person and she said, can I see that newspaper? She is on the cover of newspapers all across the country, um, not only for being the first woman to officially run this race and finish it, but also because there are so many pictures of this angry looking man yanking at her clothes while she is trying to run. He's pulling at her clothing it's such um, it's such a crazy photo. Like he he really yes. is horrifying and she looks completely blindsided. And it's just, you know, you look at the, that stuff now and you're just like, I can't imagine anyone caring this much. Like, why in the right. world would you care this mm, much about I mean, look whether at our, or not she runs? Look at our comment section, Keegan. People it's, care it's about a wild. lot of shit they shouldn't. Like, why not just wait for her to f- finish or whatever and then disqualify her if that's something that you are so concerned about? But to actually physically get out there and try and take this number off. You're so in your feelings about this situation. Well, yeah, and I'm sure wild. and I'm sure from his perspective, you know, he probably sees himself as the hero. You know, he's intervening and making her stop where maybe he thought that if he was successful, that would make him more successful because he stood up to it. You know what I mean? I think that a lot of these people have this weird idea that they're doing, they're doing the right thing by keeping the status quo the way it is. And it's, 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 I don't know. It's really crazy because he never apologizes for it that I've seen in interviews, but it is said that later, whenever it became, you know, okay for women to participate in part of the rules, that he became a supporter of women running in the marathons. So he kind of came from the perspective, as did the Boston Athletic Association director, Will Cloney. Both of them said that they came from the perspective of like, oh, no, I don't have a problem with women running. I, it's just against the rules and we have to abide by the rules. Whatever. Which... I well, don't even but understand. She, but she even exactly. signed up. Like there was no. Exactly. She looked at the rules. She signed up. She got her numbers, which to me means that she went through all the proper channels to run. 
Exactly. And, you know, Will Will Cloney, who is the BAA director, he rejected Bobby Gibbs entry the year before because he is one of those people who believed that women were physiologically incapable of running that distance. Right. And so when he was asked his opinion on the race, even though the rule book made no mention of gender and she had been properly issued a valid race registration, he said, women can't run in the marathon because the rules forbid it. Unless we have rules, society will be in chaos. I don't make the rules, but I try to carry them out. We have no space in the marathon for any unauthorized person, even a man. If that girl were my daughter, I would spank her. <gasps> How She's a t- dare you. woman. How yeah, yeah, and dare you and again like it's so strange to me that he's saying they can't run in the marathon because the rules forbid it whenever she abided by the rules that existed at the time she exactly nothing said that she couldn't participate so it was very clearly just a um a very a very sexist man especially for someone to say that if that were my daughter i would spank her are you saying that if you had a 20 year old daughter who's being just independent and living her life that you would then because spanking is a very childish Exactly. Punishment. You would never say that about a 20-year-old man. No. Your 20-year-old son. You would never say, if that were my son, I would spank him. Right. You wouldn't say that. You would never lean your 20-year-old son over your knee with your hand. You know what I mean? Like that, right. It exactly. just doesn't happen. Exactly. So because of Switzer's official entry into and completion of the marathon, the athletic, the amateur athletic union barred women from any competitions with male runners, with violators losing the right to compete in any races. So instead of being like, okay, she did this thing. That's amazing. She broke this glass ceiling. Let's make it easier for women to compete in the future because obviously they can. Right. They went the other way and barred all women from competitions with men. Of course. Just from that moment on so she along with other female runners they tried to convince the boston athletic association to allow women to participate in the marathon and finally in 1972 so like five years i think after uh the boston marathon 67 fi- yeah yeah five <laughs> years math math not great oh at my it. gosh so hard um, but the boston marathon did finally decide in 1972 to establish an official women's race okay good well but why I mean and that's a whole thing that I think that we could get into because there is a big discussion these days about men and women being in sports together because when kids are young they do play sports together there are you know Mm co-ed teams and things like that but once they get older they're separated like I know a lot of I think a couple of my second cousins even played football when they were younger. And then, you know, once you get a certain age, Mm -hmm. girls just aren't supposed to play with boys anymore. You know, and there's just something like I feel like that's definitely a bigger conversation about Mm -hmm. why why it was a good thing then to have these, you know, specific women's races and teams. But why now it's kind of like, you know, what are what are the barriers there? Can they compete together? Are there advantages and disadvantages to that and things like that? Right. Well, I mean, now, of course, the Boston Marathon, along with a lot of other marathons here in the United States, at least, they are co-ed runs. Like men and women both participate in the Boston Marathon Mm -hmm. at this point. But at the time, it sounds like, and I didn't do a lot of research into it, so maybe I'm wrong, but the way that it is worded, it says an official women's race, which sounds like a second race. Um, And I don't know... I don't know how that came to be or like when the races were ended up being combined. But, 
you know, either way, it, at the time it was a victory because they were saying you are capable of running this distance. Yeah. And we're going to allow people who want to run to be able to. And that's exactly the thing is like at that time it was so important for these women's clubs to be created. But now, you know, in 2020, it's kind of like, OK, do we do we adapt from there? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Um, so Catherine went on to run 39 marathons and she won the 1974 New York City Marathon in first place. Wow. And in 1975, her two hour, 51 minute marathon in Boston was ranked sixth in the world and um, third in the USA in women's marathons. So she continued to run. And she said in The Nation, I think that's a newspaper. I believe it she is. She went or on magazine. to say... Yeah, in 2013, she said, when I go to the Boston Marathon now, I have wet shoulders. Women fall into my arms crying. They're weeping for joy because running has changed their lives. They feel they can do anything. Oh. In, I know. In 2015, she launched her global nonprofit, 261 Fearless, with an ambassador program, club training system, and events. So 261 Fearless uses running as the means to empower women to overcome life obstacles and embrace healthy living. So it is for female runners. She started this nonprofit. In 2017, at the age of 70, she attended the Boston Marathon with her bib number 261. Mm -hmm. It's the same number that she was assigned in 1967. And she registered under the name Switzer, Catherine V. So she used her full first name. And this was the 50th anniversary of her original run at the Boston Marathon. She placed in Wave 1 and Corral 1 and finished with 4 hours, 44 minutes, and 31 seconds at, at the 70? age of 70. Yes. Oh, yes. Wait, so, and I've, I remember correctly, her first race, which granted there were some, you know, stopping and starting going on, but mm-hmm. I believe that was yes. in the four-hour range as well. So she was still yes. able to keep up with her young self. Mm-hmm. So she ended up like 24 minutes later than her original run. And, you know, a lot of people point out that Rebecca, Roberta Gibb, Bobby Gibb, she ran the Boston Marathon unofficially and her time was an hour earlier. Um, so she ran it like three, three and a half hours or right. something like that. However, Catherine Switzer did have a lot of stopping and starting. So that's probably why her first run was what it was. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it was her first marathon. She'd really not been training that long to run that distance. No. You know, she went from running 10 hours or 10 miles in practice to running 26, 20, 26 to 31 yeah, miles. If you're Catherine, um, yeah. <laughs> so also in 2017, the Boston Athletic Association announced after she ran that Boston marathon that they would not assign the bib number 261 to any future runners as an honor to her. So that they retired is that number. Awesome. I yeah, love when sports retire cool. numbers. It makes me happy. Me too. Me too. Uh, so that was her ninth Boston Marathon at that point. She'd done it nine times. Beautiful. She was leading a team of runners from her nonprofit, 261 Fearless. Uh, and so when she ran that last Boston Marathon, she brought a group of women with her, which was really, really cool. And rather than being the only official woman in the race, like in 1967, she was joined by over 13,700 women. So almost wow. half of the runners that year in 2017 
2017, almost half of the runners were women at that point. That's so amazing. It, it just changed so much from 1967 to 2017. And, um, you know, I don't know what she's up to now, but she's alive and well, still kicking it. <laughs> All right. Catherine, we want to know how you're doing. What's up? Yeah. KB. <laughs> Wow, I'm so glad you did that story because I've seen that photo so many times. And, you know, whenever I see things on Instagram like that, I'll do a quick like Google Wikipedia scan, you know, but I don't always take the time to learn more about who they are as people and, you know, the bigger story behind the picture and things like that. So I'm glad that you were able to tell that story. Yeah, I want to read her book now because, you know, I was finding a lot of information about her, but it wasn't until I read it in her own words, like describing exactly what happened, that it was it really kind of dawned on me how incredible this thing was that she did. Right, you know? because, I mean, and that's the thing when we are doing, when we're covering these forgotten feminist faves, a lot of times the information that we get is a lot of dates and locations and times and information, and it leaves out a lot of humanity. And yeah, that's, emotion. Yeah, it really yeah. does, and that's why it's so great when you can find a source like a documentary or a book. Uh, in my case, I found a lot of great articles. I found a lot of great interviews from her former students and things like that um, to kind of create some humanity, you know. And that's the it whole point of this the situation. Yeah, for sure. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody, I hope you really enjoyed listening to this episode. If there are any other forgotten feminists that you want us to cover, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist and follow us there. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F podcast we have a facebook business and group page you can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page you can also rate and review us on apple Podcasts. that is the biggest thing that helps us out and we really appreciate it if you also want to be a really big help go ahead and listen to us on radio public it is a free app for you to listen to us and it helps us just a little bit with all of that being said we encourage you to rage on Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.